Good morning. Um, so uh, some of you may have been here for the first few ses- sessions on Hebrews, and some may not have. So I just want to, um, Hebrews is a book that is it's unusual. It's unparalleled in the New Testament. We don't have any other books that are like that. And you can say that about all of them. But Hebrews is of a strange genre, and it's not really that strange. It's certainly an epistle, but it's not written like the other epistles, like Paul's epistles, like John, even like John's epistles, or like Peter's epistles. It's got, it's got other things going for it. Um, then also, there's something about it where... Um, and on that note, just sort of backtracking, it doesn't even begin with the formulas that you see in the other letters. You know, a lot of the other letters begin grace and peace to you with this greeting from the author of the letter to those first recipients of the letter. And Hebrews doesn't begin that way. It begins long ago. And it starts delving right into the theology just from that very first point. Um, so Hebrews is a, an, a very interesting book. It also... Um, As some of you who are here um, the last few weeks remember, it's a book where we don't know who the actual author is. It's it's a mystery. We have this anonymous author of this book. And as far as we can tell, he probably didn't write anything else that we have in the New Testament. We have nothing else to compare his writing to. Um, It's pretty certain that it's not Paul. Some people say, oh, it could be Paul, and it could be theologically because he has a lot in common with Paul. But that's just because he's also a Christian. So, um, but also like Paul, he was not an eyewitness of Jesus's ministry. He wasn't one of those disciples. He appears to not be one of those disciples who followed Jesus during during Jesus's life, um, but rather came to faith after that. We also know that he is very likely a Jewish Christian writing to a mixed group of Jewish and Gentile Christians. So within that, we look at well, what what is who is it that he's really writing to? You know, with with all of Paul's letters, when you may have studied those, I don't know if you realize, but each one of them, he's essentially addressing what you would call a pastoral problem. He's addressing something that's going on within this community, and he's speaking into it and or urging them. He's giving them some good theology through which they can then understand what they're doing, and, and he's sets them straight, really, and um, sets them straight specifically through theology and then gives them some practical advice. But it's really the theology that's meant to ground their action. And this writer is the same way. He is addressing what we can tell, we can identify a very specific problem in this first century community. And we know that this community was in existence before um, the year 70 AD. And this writer is writing before 70 AD, which is an, actually a, a pretty early date, a good early date for um, a written book of scripture. Um, John, for example, John's gospel is much later, we think probably in the 80s. So in the you know before the 70s, this writer is writing to this gr- group of Christians. And one of the problems that they were specifically facing was that they um, had they were Jewish Christians. It was a mixed group of Jewish and Gentile Christians, probably. But the Jewish Christians among them, um, they were beginning to experience persecution. And we don't know the particulars of this persecution. We don't know what kind of persecution they were experiencing. We don't know um, who was on the other end of the persecution, who was um, instituting this persecution and activating it. Um, but we do know that they were tempted because of this struggle, because of this suffering that they were looking at enduring, they were tempted to fall away. And the falling away, that's so it's so important to look at what does it mean to fall away? What does it mean to fall away from the Christian faith? Is it, does it mean that um, 
well, I had a bad day and I yelled at my daughter and, um, and so I did something that wasn't very Christian of me. I did that. Does that mean you've fallen away? Well, no. That's, yeah, I see a head shaking. Thank you. No, that's, that's not what it means to fall away. What the writer is talking about, this falling away, is stopping believing. Stopping believing in Jesus and all that God offers us through Jesus Christ. And so these first Christians were in, they were in danger of falling away and saying, oh, we no longer need Jesus for salvation. We no longer need him, uh, or we realized we didn't really need him. Everything we had was available to us through the covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And so they were tempted to go back to um, just those sacrifices in the temple that atone for sin, just um, looking at that first covenant and saying, this alone is enough for salvation. This alone is enough to have our sins forgiven. And so this author is saying, no, no, it's not enough. And the way that he says it's not enough, this is his whole argument, is that he is um, comparing, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He makes this comparison between these mediators of the first covenant and Jesus. And he is saying, here's this person, and as great as they were, the things that God did in and through them were just a foreshadowing of what God would do through Jesus Christ. And then he points that out and he describes what Jesus does. And he does this throughout the whole book. This is, he is so focused in, he's so zeroed in on his argument. Um, sometimes Paul goes down these bunny trails and he has these impeccable theological arguments, these, uh, this wonderful rhetoric, and you're not always, it's harder to follow Paul, actually, than it is to follow Hebrews. This writer just goes, goes for it. And he has these pauses along the way where he exhorts his, um, his first hearers and says, essentially, don't fall away. Don't stop believing. I can't help think of them, but the guy. <laughs> you are all intuitively on the same page as me. Don't, I'm not going to sing it, but someone else should, really. Don't, right? Don't stop believing. Don't stop believing. That's what he's saying. Um, and I think about this. Well, this is certainly the situation of those first hearers of this letter, this, uh, that they were in danger of stopping believing. And I think, well, are we in danger of losing our livelihood or losing our property or losing our lives for the sake of Jesus? Are we in that danger? And I think, and I say, well, no, thank goodness we're not. We're probably in, in, um, in the line of other kinds of danger, lesser dangers of derision from our peers who would say, well, oh, really, why bother? Or where I come from in Massachusetts and the Northeast, essentially, if you believe in Jesus Christ and his resurrection, if you believe in the Christian gospel, there's something wrong with you intellectually. You must not be very smart if you're prone to believe. If you need that crutch, you know, what is it that... Um, Marx said that religion is the opiate of the masses. Well, that's the opinion for, of the secular humanist Northeast that I come from. And I don't want to blanket, you know, but I would say the majority of society in, um, in my part of the country espouses that view. And it's very difficult to, in the public forum to say, no, really, Jesus is a real person and he died and his death has immense spiritual impact for us in that through his death we are able to have access to God that we would not otherwise have. And not only that, we have forgiveness of sins, and not only that, but we have resurrection from the dead on top of that. That is such a hard thing to proclaim. And yet, it's still not the kind of um, 
of discomfort. I would say it's a mild discomfort, not actual persecution. Um, but for each of us today, I think we still are in danger of falling away. We're always in danger of stopping believing. Um, and I think of it, especially if we look at our faith or we look at Christianity as a hobby. I've had very many hobbies in my life. When I, um, when I first was interviewing to come to the Advent, the, um, the other clergy asked me, I can't remember who it was, maybe it was Gil, Thank you, Gil. He asked me, he's, he's listening somewhere, or he will be at some point. <laughs> he's out there. Um, I think they asked me what my hobby, what hobbies I had, and part of me thought, I don't have any free time. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm in ministry. Are you kidding me? Do you have free time? But, um, but I, I have gone through these phases in my life where I've had very, you know, different hobbies that gripped me for a time that I was very passionate about. So when I was, um, when I was a, a small girl, I must have been only about eight years old, my parents are the oldest in their family, so, um, and they got married very young, so my three siblings and I were always flower girls or you know, whatever, ring bearers in the weddings of our aunts and uncles. And I remember getting to dance as a little girl in a froofy dress with all of my uncles, with my dad, with my two grandfathers at all of these weddings, and I loved to dance. And so as all the mothers here know, you have, if you want your daughter to dance or your daughter wants to dance, you have to start her at age three, is that right? Three or four, and there's sometimes this attitude, well, if you didn't start her at age four, it's too late now. Well, I wanted in fourth grade and when I was nine, I begged my mother to let me take dance lessons. And so um, instead of taking ballroom dance, which is what I wanted to do, but they don't have that for nine-year-olds in Western Pennsylvania. <laughs> Instead of that, I started learning tap and jazz and all of these fun kinds of dance. And I did that for a really long time through, well, not a really long time, through high school until we moved to a place where I couldn't dance anymore. And then the passion was still there, but it just faded as a hobby. I got, I got over it, you know. Um, and then in college, I discovered theater. And theater was such a passionate hobby of mine. I spent all of my time doing theater. I was a French major in college so that because it was easy for me, so that I could spend all of my waking hours at the theater, building, constructing those stages and things like that, and acting and directing, everything I could possibly do, I did there. And I, I don't know if you're like me in that, you know, you have these passionate hobbies that might grip you for a time, and um, they kind of consume you, and you do spend all of your free time doing them, and then at another point in your life, you think, oh yeah, I was really into that, wasn't I? I was really into... What's that? Wish I could get over old cars. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, I think that's admirable. So if, you, if you're still passionate about old cars, that is a great thing. I mean, do you feel like you have some hobbies that have stayed with you? I would say good for you, bully for you. That's wonderful. I seem to have been a little bit flightier. And so I think that the danger is that faith would become a passion for a time, a flash in the pan, something that moves us, whether we become Christians or come to faith when we're young, and sometimes we might feel, well, where's the passion of my youth? Where's the passion that I used to have for Jesus or the passion that first brought me here, that knowledge when I first knew that I was a sinner saved by grace? What happened to that? Well, there. Um, this is... This, so we see that this danger of stopping believing is something that every one of us is 
can be prone to. It's not just at the hands of persecution. And so this message from Hebrews is for us today. Any message in scripture is always for us. But that, I would say, is how this message is for us, that we would um, not stop believing just because um, our circumstances have changed or things have gotten difficult. might be harder to believe now than it used to be, um, but the writer to the letter of the Hebrews and God writing through the writer to the letter of the Hebrews urges us, don't stop believing. And then he gives us the how. How do we not stop believing? Well, the how is by comparing anything with Jesus. And for this, for this writer, the, the comparison is between all of these aspects of the first covenant. For us, it might be something else. Whatever it is that's drawing you away from Jesus that might tempt you to not believe or to stop believing, how great is it? Is it greater than Jesus? Let's see. Well, so um, this argument um, of each one of these things is greater than Jesus can be summarized in that verse from chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 14 of chapter 4, which is the beginning of the section that I'm looking at today. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So um, it describes this great high priest, Jesus Christ. And this is the image that is contained all throughout Hebrews. He talks about other ways. He uses other ways of looking at Jesus. Jesus the Son. Jesus more glorious than angels. Jesus, all of these things. But the prime image is of Jesus Christ, the great high priest, and the mediator of a better covenant. And Gil will look at some, the second aspect of how Jesus is the great high priest next week. We'll look at the first part today. Um, so that, that really summarizes the argument, that one verse. And it also shows how, um, how the author is so keen on urging, encouraging people. Don't stop believing. That is in the let us hold fast to our confession. Let us. You know, you can always tell um, when it gets to the lettuce part of the sermon, the lettuce. I always think of salad, but it's let <laughs> us. Let us not hold fast to our confession. Um, so one of the ways in which he uses this argument, he's, he argues from the lesser to the greater. I mentioned that before, but he makes this comparison between something that's good and Jesus that is even better. Um, this is good, but Jesus is so much better. And Jesus fulfills the hopes that were in modicum you know, brought to the light through this one person or this institution or this thing, Jesus is greater and all of our hopes are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Um, so he uses, um, we looked um, in our first week at angels um, and the reason why, why angels, why are angels a temptation for these people? Why are angels what might be drawing people away from faith in Jesus Christ? Well, they're pretty powerful, um, glorious, and that's one of the words that the writer uses to describe angels, um, this supernatural presence, um, God's messengers with a message for his people. And the, the belief in the first century uh, of the Jews was that angels were the mediators of the covenant, the first covenant, that the, um, the Ten Commandments were delivered to Moses through angels. 
they believed that, and there was some rabbinic literature that suggested that angels, we don't see it in our actual Pentateuch, but they talked about it a lot, and they believed that angels were the ones that actually spoke this message to, um, to Moses instead of it being just sort of God directly speaking. So angels are involved in that giving of the first covenant, um, and yet he talks about angel, the son is as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The next thing that the um, author compares, and we looked at this last week, was Moses. Moses, this great leader of the people of Israel. Moses, who brought them out of, through whom God brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery, out into the desert, gave them this wonderful covenant of love, this, um, this, these tablets that showed them what it meant to be holy, how they could be like their God who is holy. Gave them this um, road map, which we know was um, meant to show the sin of the people of Israel show us our sin as well. That's why um, in our 7.30 service we read them once a month. We read them and we say, these are the Ten Commandments. And that was the original intent in the liturgy is that as we read the commandments, as we read those Ten Commandments um, through the Mosaic Law, we are they judge us. We compare ourselves with the Ten and we say, um, woe is me, I haven't measured up. We're able to say that as they're read to us. And so Moses mediated that first covenant, the law. Um, And yet what the author of the Hebrews says is that Moses was a leader, yes, but there were all these people that failed to enter into the rest that God had promised them. They failed to enter into the promised land through their disbelief and their disobedience. And that remember, that first generation that came out of Egypt died on the threshold of the promised land. They were not able to enter in. And so that's one of these first negative comparisons that the author uses for these early Hebrew Christians, saying, don't be like them. They died in the wilderness through their disbelief and their disobedience. Don't be like that. Keep on believing. Don't be like that. Um, Then then today, as we look at Aaron um, and Jesus, and there's this comparison between... um, between Aaron the, the, um, who, and the Levitical priests, those priests descended from Levi, who's one, Levi is one of the 12 sons of Jacob that would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And the Levites were specifically meant to always be priests in the tabernacle or then in the temple. And their job as priests in the tabernacle and the temple was to, um, was to offer sacrifices, take those lambs and goats and offerings of the people and sacrifice them on the altar to God to atone for the sins of the people. And the whole purpose of that atonement was, yes, so that their sins would be forgiven, so that they would be cleansed, and then so that they could draw near in worship, so that they could enter into the presence of a holy God without fear or condemnation, and that through that worship they would be transformed um, and empowered for, for their lives. Um, so. Uh, any questions? Well, first of all, priests are tough to use because we think in many churches, Anglican ministers or Episcopal ministers are called priests. Have you heard that? We're not as big on that language here at the Advent. But one of the reasons why that can be confusing, especially with Hebrews in mind, is well, what is that meant to evoke? Um, and the actual word used throughout the New Testament to describe those ordained leaders in the church Yes, bishops is used, but that's episcopoi. Is the sounds familiar? Episcopoi, right? Episcopal. Yeah, that's where it comes from. Our name comes from bishops. That we're a church with bishops. 
Yeah, episkopoi. That's that's the that. But in the New Testament, episkopoi seems to be used interspersed with presbyteroi, which does that and that from that um, Greek word comes the English word presbyter. Have you heard that? Um, we're not Presbyterian, but Presbyterians look at that Greek word and they say, well, the presbyters are the elders of the congregation. And so in our Episcopal church, in the Anglican church, we look at our leaders, our ordained leaders, and um, essentially we're seeing these are the leaders of the church, these are the elders of the church, synonymous with the elders of the Presbyterian church. Um, and so what is it that we then do? Why is it confusing to call us priests? Well, it's confusing because it ends up, what it means is that um, if we're called priests, then we end up as a church confusing what goes on in worship. What did we just do during Holy Communion? Is that a sacrifice that atones for our sins to God? Even just that praying over the bread and the wine and the receiving of the bread and the wine. And the answer is no. What that does is we remember every time we come together, every time we break bread and drink wine together, we remember Jesus' death and that once and for all sacrifice. And Hebrews calls it a once and for all sacrifice later on. And so what, what Hebrews is talking about is that Jesus is the one who once and for all has offered up a sacrifice to God to atone for the sins of the people, to atone for the sins of humanity. So... Um, any questions about that? Any questions about what it means to be a priest and why? Why is it that um, these Old Testament priests <coughs> that prefigure Jesus, why are they not a good, um, what, what, how are they different from me, for example, or from Joe or Andrew or um, Frank how, or Craig? How is that different? Did I do well, justice to, yeah, please. Those priests, I mean, isn't this right? They were sort of the mediator for the people. Mm -hmm. I mean, they the people would they they couldn't atone for them their sins mm -mm. by themselves. They had to use a priest to do the sacrifice. Right. That, right, that is right. Yeah. And the priest was, in some ways, in that setting, the priest represents the people before God, mm -hmm. and the priest represents God to the people. And in our system today, um, one of the things that happened a few centuries after Jesus, you know, in the early church, they began to, and I don't know why, and, you know, maybe I need to study my church history a little better, but they began to see the role of their leaders as being um, kind of a, a reenactment, essentially, of what of who Jesus is, a representation of who Jesus is to God's people and a representation to God of the people of God. But essentially... If in any way our leaders are that, it's only because Jesus is that. Do you know? Do you see what I mean? It's only through Jesus that any of that ever happens. If it happens, as far as prayers, we talk about intercession. We talk about intercession in two ways. We talk about interceding. Remember, if you're interceding for your friend, you're praying for your friend. You're praying to God for your friend, and Jesus is our great intercessor. And um, Paul talks about this in Ephesians, that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. He lives to intercede for us. He prays to the Father for us on our behalf. He is our representative at the throne room, in the throne room of God. So there's that sense of interceding on our behalf for our prayers. As we, and that's why we always pray in Jesus' name, right? But the reason why, again, but that's tied to the other reason for intercession. The other meaning of intercession is this atoning for this mediator who atones for the sins of the people. 
he himself atones for the sins of the people. And that's, is that? Well, that's what I was kind of, you know, in all this, how the author was kind of comparing these, you know, lesser, lesser things to Jesus. And of course, those priests, as high and mighty as the people must have thought of them and how respected they were and how yeah. they needed the priests for their atonement Oh, they're not. They prefigure. Yeah. The best word I think is prefigure. They're a prototype right. of Jesus. They they um, they create in the mind of the people the expectation that this this is what's necessary. This is what needs to happen, and they pave the way for Jesus by showing. Well, this is a necessary thing. Atonement of sins right. is a necessary thing, so that when Jesus is born and then dies through his death, then that then we can understand his death in this through this lens that we've already been given. And yet we understand him as so much greater than those that have gone before. And the need for atonement, when you think about the Old Testament, do you remember reading those passages about um, the Ark of the Covenant and where the Ark of the Covenant would go, all these weird things would happen? Um, And why do all these weird things happen? Does anybody remember that? It's weird. You have to read Judges and Joshua to get a lot of that. Yes, and you see it when the covenant is brought from... um, this outpost, I don't remember what the name of it is. Um, oh, I, I lose some stars on my Sunday school crown, I think. But, um, <laughs> I was studying that in my Bible study not too long ago. And and, yeah. I don't remember the whole story, but it was like, here, let's let them have the part. You know, get it out of here. Get it over to the, the other town over. And then they, right. bad things started happening. Now, let's, it was kind of like a they white got, elephant. Let's keep moving along. Somebody touched it and they fell over dead. Exactly. There are all these people got tumors, right? And then this, these are the Philistines. When the Ark of the Covenant is in the Philistine camp, they capture it, right? It's in the Philistine camp, and it's in their town, and all these bad things keep happening because they don't know, they don't know their uncleanness in the presence of a holy God. They're not in awe of the holy God um, whose presence is made manifest in this Ark. And then, do you rem- and then what happens as they're moving it, someone reaches out to touch it, right? It's going to fall. And this is when David is trying to bring it into Jerusalem. And David is so upset. Naturally, we would all be upset. What it shows, though, is that um, the Levitical priests were necessary as this intermediary because they were consistently cleansing themselves. They were anointed and set apart. Um, They were following these extra regulations about holiness so that they were somewhat safer in the presence of God than the other people. And they would offer, you know, and Hebrews will talk about this later on. Gil might talk about this next week about offering the high priest on the Day of the Atonement, offering a sacrifice for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because he would go into the most holy place. Remember, the most holy place in the temple or the tabernacle, it's like concentric circles. It's like the bullseye of the temple. And in that bullseye, that's where the mercy seat is. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is. Then there's this mercy seat. How wonderful that in the ancient Near East, where all of these other gods were represented by a visual image, the Lord Most High, Yahweh himself, is not represented by any image, but there's an empty chair for him. 
I get, sorry, I get chills about that. And then there are, there are these angels represented, overshadowing all around this empty chair, this throne of, it's called the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant. And that was what was in this innermost place and um, in this innermost bullseye of the temple and the tabernacle. And the high priest would go into that place once a year and go right into the presence of God. And it was not just this um, beautiful gold place. They felt the presence of the Lord. It's just like when, remember when the Israelites are in the desert and Moses meets with God? Whenever Moses meets with God, there's this cloud over the tabernacle, this heavy presence of God that was tangible, tangible to fallen mortal human beings, which is kind of impressive and exciting, but also scary if you were were, uh, like... Isaiah, unclean, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I've seen the holy, I've seen God himself, who's holy, who angels fall down and worship, saying, holy, holy, holy. And that's why that man who reached out to touch the ark when it was slipping um, was kind of just, it's just like this magnetic, um, I always think of it as a chemical reaction, just sort of this unholiness is consumed in the presence of holiness, and God is ultimately holy. And so the, the mediation, the intermediary, is to bring, how do you bring an unholy people into the presence of a holy God? How do we as sinners get to be in the presence of the sinless one? and get to worship him. Well, it's through the mediation, and for them it was through the mediation of these priests. Um, but they had to keep, and he will talk about this, they had to keep offering these sacrifices. And yet, that's why Jesus offers this once and for all sacrifice. He is both the priest and the victim. He is both the lamb that was slain and the priest that offers the sacrifice. Um, and um, so, let's. any other questions about priesthood in general before we look at Melchizedek? What a mouthful of a name, right? Um, well, uh, the letter to the uh, the author of the letter to the Hebrews uses this one passage from um, Psalm 110. He keeps repeating it. He says, um, "The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever." And he's talking to Jesus after the order of Melchizedek. Well, who is Melchizedek? This is this is the Sunday school question, right? Who is this guy? Well, it's only mentioned twice in the whole Hebrew Bible. Only mentioned twice. Once in Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. And in that setting, what has happened is that Abraham went out and fought these kings. um, And he won. He won this battle. And what he was actually doing, he was rescuing these other people. It's a longer story. He was rescuing these other people. He comes back victorious from battle. And as he's headed back home, this, this king who's a king and called a priest of the Most High, named Melchizedek. Melchizedek's name means king of, um, of righteousness because um, righteousness is tzedek in Hebrew. I might have gotten this wrong on your sheet. He's the king of righteousness. He's also the king of peace. Salem is short for Jerusalem, so he might have had jurisdiction over Jerusalem in that day um, before Abraham's, uh, Abraham's descendants were lords over Jerusalem. He was king of Salem, so possibly Jerusalem. But Salem sounds like, does that, do you know what that is? It sounds like a Hebrew word that, it's probably the only Hebrew word that everybody knows. Shalom. I know. Everybody gets stars. Shalom. Shalom is for peace. He's the king of peace and the king of righteousness. And, and he's also both a king and a priest. 
because he offers he offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving for what's happened, and um, he blesses Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and Abraham offers to Melchizedek a tithe of his spoils, and the author to the letter of Hebrew uh, the uh, the author says that um, that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. It is beyond dispute in verse 7 of chapter 7, that the inferior, Abraham, is blessed by the superior, Melchizedek. Then he goes on to say that Melchizedek is greater even than Levi, who is um, Abraham's grandson, right? Greater even than Levi, and not just Levi, but all of his descendants, who were those Levitical priests who offered the sacrifices in the temple. Um, Melchizedek is greater than Levi, those priests, because they essentially tithed to Melchizedek through their grandfather. He's using, some, he's using a very interesting argument to say this, but essentially what he's saying is that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, as we see through the prophecy of King David in Psalm 110, and that therefore he's greater than this Levitical priesthood, those priests that were descended from Levi, because Levi essentially paid tribute to Melchizedek even before he was born, because his grandfather paid tribute to him. It's, it's an interesting argument. Um, it's maybe not necessarily the way we would argue. Um, but this Psalm 110 that the writer uses to describe Jesus, and he uses it over and over again. If you had, I mean, I count it at least one, two, three, four, at least three times he's using this psalm and saying, Jesus is a priest of the order of Melchizedek. And what is the context of that psalm? Whenever a New Testament writer quotes something, he very often is trying to evoke the whole chapter or the whole passage. And that's because the first century, the Israelite people were an oral culture primarily. And so when you quote one thing, you think of another thing. I mean, how many of you, um, if, you know, I said don't stop believing, and you all thought of the song. You all thought of the song. If you say one song lyric, I mean, I can't even think of one off my, the top of my head. Do you have a song lyric in your mind that we will all know? I don't want to put you on the spot. But there, isn't it true that if you hear one song lyric somewhere, then you have the song in your head forever? Well, the same is true with scripture for an oral culture. When you think they think of the whole psalm, and the whole psalm 110 is about great David's greater son. Psalm 110 talks about um, talks about um, great David's greater son, the Messiah, who would sit at sit um, sit at the right hand of God, and who God who, and God would make his enemies a footstool for his feet. Have you heard that said about Jesus? Well, then when it's said about Jesus, it's quoting Psalm 110. It's talking about this king, David's son, the king, the Messiah, and they came to understand that this prophecy was about the Messiah, who would rule over all the nations. And then it talks about this, this Messiah also being a priest, like Melchizedek. That's the only other place where it's mentioned, um, where Melchizedek is men mentioned in the Hebrew Bible. So it's so interesting to see the new, this New Testament author to the, of the letter to the Hebrews saying that, that prophecy of a king and a priest together, well, that is about Jesus Christ. Um, so how then is Jesus a priest? Well, Jesus was appointed by God. It says that in verse 5 of chapter 5. Every high priest is chosen from among men, or for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a priest, but it was appointed by him who said to him, 
You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Another quote from Psalm 2. God saying of Jesus, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. A priest also offers up um, prayers and supplications. And Jesus Christ even offers up the sacrifice of his own flesh. Later on, this author to the le- of the letter to the Hebrews will say that Jesus, by the means of his own blood, entered into that most holy place. And not just the most holy place on earth, in the tabernacle or the temple, but the heavenly reality, the real holy place on high in heaven, of which the earthly place is just a shadow and a copy. Um, Jesus is also human. And as a human great high priest, he is sympathetic to those who are tempted. And we see this in chapter uh, chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus Christ is a forerunner into God's presence. He goes on before so that those whose sins are forgiven might enter into that most holy place. Chapter 6, verses 19 through 20 has this wonderful, wonderful verse. This is one I don't have memorized, but I wish I did because it's so encouraging. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, through his death, has made atonement for sins by his blood, and he has then been just like that, great, that high priest that would go in once a year into the inner place, into that most holy place. Jesus has gone in before us, entered in, And it's by his blood that we then are cleansed from sin and able to enter into the presence of the most holy God. And it's almost as though the writer is holding back the curtain and saying, look, your Redeemer has already gone in once and for all. There's nothing else that you have to do. No other sacrifice has to be offered. You just have to receive again what Jesus has done for you, and then you can enter in. Why would you, di- why would you leave this to go back to um, something that cannot make you perfect, something that cannot atone for your sins once and for all? Why would you go back to that? He's arguing, don't go back. Don't stop believing. And he does this by talking about Jesus' eternal um, nature. Jesus lives forever. He talks about Jesus' resurrection, that Jesus is a priest forever because of the power of his indestructible life. He holds his priesthood permanently. And because he lives forever and is eternal, he is then able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. He has gone into the presence of God, and by his blood we too enter in. How could we then go away from that? How could we fall away? How could anything else remotely um, allow us to be in God's presence? How could anything else remotely atone for our sins? So let's give thanks, and I'll pray, and then you can ask me any questions you want. So let's pray. 
Oh Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks and praise for being our great high priest who has entered into that curtain in heaven, who has gone into the holy place, the most holy place, and has entered in by giving up of his own self, his very own life, and his very own blood. And we thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for entering in on our behalf, for atoning for our sins. And so we ask that you would um, forgive us our sins and that you would open wide that curtain, that you would hold back the curtain and beckon us forward into the presence of Almighty God, that we might be transformed by his presence and by his holiness. And so we ask all this through your strong and powerful name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Any questions? I gave you a lot of material, as, as usual. I was just going to say that last little bit is such, um, you know, sometimes when you're praying and praying for something and you just keep praying and you're just not, you don't know if you're connecting or you've prayed and prayed till you can't pray anymore, you know, especially when, if it's a difficult situation. But there's such a comfort in knowing that even when you don't know how to pray, if you're in a situation and you don't really know how to pray, there's just a comfort in knowing that Jesus lives to intercede for us and he's praying for us even when we don't know how to pray. Absolutely. He is right there. And he is also sovereign. So he knows the entire situation. He knows the entire situation better than we do. And he knows even better than we do what to ask for, which is so comforting. Yeah, and I often, those prayers to me, they're often like, they're wordless prayers to Jesus. Help! And he knows, and he lives to intercede for us. Thank you, Gretchen. Anybody else? Robert? Uh, We we were saying earlier that we don't know exactly who wrote the book of Hebrews. Do we have an idea who he was writing to? Yes, we know that he was writing to these Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians. We're not sure exactly where they were. There were a lot of um, Jewish Christians in Alexandria. There were a lot in Antioch. We're not totally sure. There there isn't one location that comes out at us and says, oh, this is where. It might have been Jerusalem. It's not entirely clear. Some suggested authors have been Paul. Some say Paul, but the style of writing is so different, it probably is not Paul. I think I've said this before, that the, the Greek grammar of this writer is so even superior to Paul's. Superior even to Luke's, who's another, has really good Greek grammar. Well, Hebrews is the most eloquent Greek writer of the New Testament. Um, Some people say Barnabas, because Barnabas spent some time with Paul. Isn't that a great idea? I love that. And Barnabas might have been of a priestly family, and so he'd be able to argue from this. Isn't that great? Some people say, some feminists say Priscilla, and I'm like, I think it probably wasn't Priscilla. She also spent time with Paul, but women didn't really know how to weren't educated well enough to be able to write this. Um, any other questions or thoughts? Do you want to share anything with us, Chris? No. Anybody else? Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.